How do we change that? We have to really think about reinventing, you know, a food system that goes towards converting farmers to growing food that is profitable for them, diversifying their crops and reducing the use of synthetic inputs that are then inherently subsidized by the government. And that's that's really that's that's the challenge socially that we're facing today. You are listening to the Real Leaders Podcast, your number one source for impact leaders harnessing capitalism to sustain the planet, people, and profits. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that message was from Matthew Wadiak, the founder of both Blue Apron and Cook's Venture, who shares today the ingredients of systems change. And on today's episode, I asked Matthew about the forecast for food insecurity, why he decided to pursue regenerative agriculture, and the offshoots that come from pursuing big and bold ideas. So before we begin, folks, I just want to let you all know that this interview was recorded on our new live stream podcast. So make sure to go to online to real-leaders.com slash newsletter, enter in your email to follow along live, ask questions, and who knows, even come on stage. All right, that's it for me. Let's jump back into this episode with the real Matthew Wadiak. Enjoy. All right, Matt, and we'll get started here in five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is the founder of both Blue Apron and Cook's Ventures, Mr. Matthew Wadiak. Matthew, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. So, Matthew, you've got a pretty incredible story here. Um, and the thing I'm most fascinated about, we're going to be talking a lot about food today. We're going to be making some people hungry today on the show. And the thing I like about food is you don't really understand how it got to your plate, how it got to your table, and all the hands that it touched, and all the value that's added through that supply chain. So before we get into the ins and outs of food, Matthew, I want to hear and go back about into your career. How does your story go and what started the idea of Cook's Venture? You know, it's funny, you, you probably have heard this before, but I, I love the uh, commencement address that Steve Jobs gave at Stanford so many years ago, where he talks about where he is today with Apple and building the company up and how when he was younger, that path led him through decision making and not really knowing what was going to happen to where you know he ended up as CEO of Apple and very successful, famous global entrepreneur. And I think everybody's story is kind of like that. And it starts with things that you don't know that you're doing, and then you progress and learn through life and you end up with some kind of knowledge that you've acquired in your suitcase of life. For me, it was, I started as a cook when I was 16 years old in high school and I worked in restaurants and ended up going to culinary school and moving out to Italy and then California. And through the experiences of of becoming a chef and learning how to cook and, and learning how to respect food, I gained an appreciation for ingredients. And that appreciation for ingredients was um, profound in the sense that I learned when I first moved to California, what a really good cucumber tastes like for the first time. It's the first time I had something that wasn't from a grocery store. And I learned what, you know, incredible Romano beans tasted like, or a really great piece of of ocean caught salmon. 
And understanding that flavor led me to wanting to learn more about why that food was so good compared to the food that I had from my local grocery store growing up. So I went out and I worked on farms on the weekends, got my hands in the dirt, and it became really clear pretty quick, quickly that the farmers that were regionally starting that organic movement of food back in um, the late 1990s, before we even called it USDA organic, were following things like, you know, rotating their soil, rotating their vegetables, focusing on techniques that were driven through Elliot Coleman and permaculture and like kind of the hippie movement of, of grassroots farming in the 1960s and 70s in California. But as it turned out, that healthy soil that they were actually producing, that was really their product, created really healthy and delicious produce that from a culinary standpoint, as a culinarian and a chef, was completely different and game-changing for me. So if you fast forward a few years from my transition from the restaurant world into entrepreneurship and having a few companies and eventually founding Blue Apron, it became really clear that when we started serving you know, millions of people instead of hundreds of people in a dining room, that that kind of supply chain wasn't really available to people in scale. Mm. And when something isn't available in scale and you're a cook and you really want it, what are your options if you're trying to source great food? If you can't buy it, you have to go and you have to make it. Hmm. So one of the things that we did in, in BA when I was there is we partnered with 250 farms around the country and brought on a full team of agroecologists and agronomists and set up things like um, soil sensors, heat unit mapping, which is a way to reduce the time of harvest predictively from three months down to about three days. And put in technology where we could use cultivars that had never been commercially grown before and predictively grow that food so we could place it on a menu a year out. A lot of people actually don't know that story, but it's a really interesting story. And it's how we were able to increase our supply chain and put things like you know heirloom vegetables and honey nut squash, which were first grown at Blue Hill Stone Barn, on menus across the country with hundreds of farmers. And then I partnered with Bill Nyman, who was a mentor of mine back from my, my California days cooking. And he took me around the world um, learning about the beef business and the lamb business and the pork business and the poultry business. And through that, I learned that one of the, the most unfortunate things is that despite all of the great poultry that's grown in America, it actually only comes from two breeds of um, genetic livestock. There's a, a big company called Aviagen and a company called Cobb, and they dominate over 90% of the global genetics of poultry. And they've become these really fast growing animals that convert feed very efficiently, but don't have very good flavor, don't have very good immune systems, and don't really have the ability to run around outside and live good lives. And when I learned that, you know, it, it made sense for me to integrate into livestock management. And the only way to do that was to found a, a vertically integrated poultry company. So, so as of today now, um, the path has led me sort of down this rabbit hole of, of, of creating different systems in food over the years and building in complexity and using the knowledge that we gained in heat unit mapping and understanding biodiversity. We utilize that same philosophy in growing different crops for livestock consumption and growing different breeds of poultry that are 100% heritage breeds for human consumption that are healthier animals that are better for people too, and that are better for the social benefits of farmers and, and, and building a food system with integrity. So that's kind of how I got here today. It was a long road and it was, it was a lot of windy paths, but all of that knowledge has become applicable to our current business. 
Well, it's very interesting. And kind of what jumps out at me and what comes to my mind, Matthew, is it's very similar. I'm going to make this transition. It's very similar to Patagonia. Uh, Patagonia, every single time uh, they ran into a problem where they weren't working with an organic supply chain or supplier, they learned to innovate around that and develop and pour masses, massive amount of money into this organic supply chain to benefit the environment. Now, what type of challenge are we talking about here? Now, for the average pedestrian listening to this right now, Matthew, in terms of the supply chain for organic, healthy produce like that cucumber you tried for the first time, what type of challenges are we talking about right now? There are a lot of challenges, and and the the biggest one is the the industrialized food system and the commercial food system versus the consumer-driven food system, which is something you'd buy in a grocery store. So when you see news of farmers tilling spinach and onions and vegetables back into their fields and euthanizing animals right now, it's because the the way that industrial food works is it's a, a really a pennies commodities game. And the, the large food service companies in America don't really drive their engine with the same kind of consumer insight that um, you might go to the grocery store and pick something off the shelf. So because of that and because of the packaging challenges associated with harvesting and packaging those goods for um, a diverse supply chain, like a retail application versus a, a big you know, food service application, like a hospital or a school, we're, we're seeing a breakdown in, in utilization of food that was grown with the intent, you know, to feed people and instead is being tilled back into the soil or in, in some cases, animals being euthanized. That's actually tragic. And it's indicative of bigger problems around how we consume and how we decide to spend dollars on food as institutional thinkers well beyond the grocery store. A lot of people just think about the shopping cart, but every time you eat something in you know, uh, uh, you know, one of these big campuses out in California for a tech company or, you know, in a salad bar or in a restaurant that, um, you know, isn't a, a premium place that is contributing to that machine that is meant to drive labor costs down at the cost of employees often, um, increase the use of, of petrochemicals and increase the use of synthetic inputs in the in in herbicides and pesticides. So taking that stuff out of the food and building back in social dynamics and building back in um, the reduction of synthetic inputs actually doesn't cost as much as you think on a per meal basis. We're talking about, you know, a quarter, maybe 50 cents per meal, which is something that is sort of um, class agnostic, but is a commitment, but it will empower institutional buyers to think about the food that they're coming from in a different way. And I think especially right now where we're seeing so much fragmentation in the food business, the question is, should be, did somebody have to potentially risk their lives to create this food? And if that's the case, we shouldn't need it. We should demand something better. Uh, Matt, 70% of the world's produce come from smallholder farmers, uh, people that lack the equipment, like you were mentioning earlier. Uh, the the infrared lasers, the technology, the equipment that they need to to increase their their yields. Uh, 70% of the world's poor are also smallholder farmers. Um, And, you know, you're you're driving at these systemic issues that are the vehicle of what's holding labor costs down, what's putting uh, food with injected hormones into your body. Um, Maybe touch on that a little bit more. And do you see... 
consumer demand um, increasing for quality organic products uh, that can also have a better environmental impact as well? Absolutely, consumer demand is increasing. And when I think about organic, we use the word regenerative in our company because mm. organic is a qualifier that could include a lot of different things. It's a, it's a label. And for example, a good way to think about the food system, a lot of people think about, and we talked about it earlier, vegetable farmers, onions, spinach, you know, your uh, peaches and nuts and things like that. That actually only constitutes about 3% of American agriculture. 97% of American agriculture is in, in row crops. And globally, the predominance of American, uh, of, of global agriculture is row crops. And if, in, in terms of caloric density, and how that food gets distributed. It's primarily for, in the U.S., ethanol. And we, when we're thinking about farming, that's, a, that's 40% of America's largest crop, corn. But in terms of human consumption, it actually mostly goes to animals and animal feed. So when we're thinking about small farmers and the income of small farmers, the folks who are really hit the hardest are the ones who are growing row crops, specifically those who are in uh, glacial soils in the Midwest who have access to incredible topsoil and who have been sort of forced down this pipeline of um, growing conventional, primarily corn and soybeans that are subsidized crops. And that's a huge problem because a, a government subsidized um, corn plant or soybean is inherently more expensive to grow than what the farmer makes for. So the U.S. government and our taxes create that subsidy to pay the farmer a fair market wage. And that's led to institutional poverty within the farming community to the point that in the most recent farm census, we saw that less than 50% of farmers in the last five years made positive income. Hmm. So I can't think of another single job, and you interview people all the time, I don't know if any of them could think of single jobs where people would say, I, I'm willing to take a five-year um, hit on revenue for my career choice and service the public and provide 100% of the food for everyone. In addition to that, the farmers in America represent less than 1% of the voting constituency. So you have less than 1% of the voters representing 100% of the eaters. So where's that money coming from? Well, it's the folks who are providing the seeds and the genetic inputs and the glyphosate and the dicamba and the petrochemical fertilizers and the oil and the ethanol industry that are lobbying our congressional leaders to create regulation around food in our country, primarily in the form of crops going to animals. So how do we change that? We have to really think about reinventing, you know, a food system that goes towards converting farmers to growing food that is profitable for them, diversifying their crops and reducing the use of synthetic inputs that are then inherently subsidized by the government. And that's, that's really, uh, that's, that's the challenge socially that we're facing today. So what I'm concerned about, Matt, is feeding the, the people around the world. By 2050, the population is going to increase. Food supply projected, projectedly is, needs to increase by, I think, 50. I think some people say 50%, some people say 70%. Yeah. So when you say we want to bring this new technology to increase massive, you know, regenerative supply chains, 
are you still going to be able to feed that amount of people? Yeah, absolutely. And that's like straight out of the playbook of like bear crop science, actually, that, that we have to feed more people. And, you know, National Chicken Council says that too. the fact of the matter is there's a, a really popularized USDA study that was conducted just a few years ago. And um, Rodale has validated this data in their 40 year crop ret- report. So is the Union of Concerned Scientists where F1 hybridized crops, non GMO crops actually are better yielding, especially in drought years than GMO crops, because we know that petrochemical inputs and glyphosate erode soil and they reduce the root permanence in the ground. So actually a no-till system that is more regenerative with non-GMOs is a better yielding food system inherently. Hmm. And diversity of crops provides insulation against blights and insects and pest pressure and um, weed resistance that you're seeing in all over, you know, middle America. How do we change that? We have to really think about reinventing, you know, a food system that goes towards converting farmers to growing food that is profitable for them, diversifying their crops and reducing the use of synthetic inputs that are then inherently subsidized by the government. And that's, that's really, that's, that's the challenge socially that we're facing today. So what I'm concerned about, Matt, is feeding the people around the world. By 2050, the population is going to increase. Food supply projectedly needs to increase by, I think, 50. I think some people say 50%. Some people say 70%. Yeah. So when you say we want to bring this new technology to increase massive you know, regenerative supply chains, are you still going to be able to feed that amount of people? Yeah, absolutely. And that's like straight out of the playbook of like bear crop science, actually, that that we have to feed more people. And, you know, National Chicken Council says that too. the fact of the matter is there's a a really popularized USDA study that was conducted just a few years ago. And um, Rodale has validated this data in their 40 year crop report. So is the Union of Concerned Scientists where F1 hybridized crops, non GMO crops actually are better yielding especially in drought years than GMO crops, because we know that petrochemical inputs and glyphosate erode soil and they reduce the root permanence in the ground. So actually a no-till system that is more regenerative with non-GMOs is a better yielding food system inherently. Hmm. And diversity of crops provides insulation against blights and insects and pest pressure and, um, weed resistance that you're seeing in all over, you know, middle America. So these systems not only feed more people, they feed more people more securely with climate alterations that we're experiencing and and drought years and rainy years, because building good root systems in the ground prevent erosion. And they also prevent desertification by, by estimates um, of most scientists who study soil. They'll tell you that, we might have, if we continue on the exact same trajectory of what we're doing today, 60 more good harvests before we have essentially unharvestable crops and desertified land in the Midwest. That means the complete erosion of hundreds of thousands of years of glacial topsoil that was built over the course of you know, those eons when, when glaciers were moving through the plains. Uh, the thing that jumps out to me on this is the original intent of genetically modified crops. Um, and, and one of my favorite persons, I guess, just, you know, I'm a historian. I, I really, I'm really into, uh, Norman 
Borlaug's work and what he did and what you know he brought to this world you know at that time and at that time i think india was starving scientists are predicting this this country of millions and millions of people are going to run out of food and it wasn't until borlaug dedicated his life he actually wanted to join the military um this is after uh pearl harbor got bombed um and uh he left his family and kids in new york flew down to mexico worked in poverty to try to develop um, a crop um, that would, um, I think it was, it was, was it corn? I think it was corn. No, it was wheat. It was wheat and uh, rust was the big, the big problem that they had. Um, so the question isn't really about Norman Borlaug. What I'm, what I'm fascinated about Borlaug was there were things that were offshoots from what, from all of his work and all of his research and development that came from this efforts and, and whether it was the temperature or being able to, to grow something at a different soil level, a different altitude, all these things came about. Are there any offshoots for, for uh, throughout your experience with Blue Apron, throughout your experience with Cook's Venture that have surprised you that you've been able to innovate around? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm not one to say that the big ag companies are horrible. They're out to make a profit in we're, we're living in, you know, a capitalist society. So that's their job, obviously. But when it comes at the risk of food security, that becomes a problem. So it becomes a social issue that's bigger than, you know, any independent company. The things that they do really well are some of the science that I was mentioning earlier, like the USDA APHIS data that came out of those big crop systems. These are all government supported programs, too, by the way. All of that data that came out and was aggregated is really useful information geographically by altitude and, and, and specific um, location. And understanding weather patterns and weather data in land and microclimates is really essential for crops, especially if you want to build diversified crops. The kind of technology that was available previously to sort of World War II, post-World War II farming would not have cut it with the things that we're trying to do today and the kind of crop science that we're trying to utilize today. And that all came out of this world of, of what you're talking about. And it's really useful. In addition to that, you know, the soil sensors and satellite mapping and, you know, drone technology is, is phenomenal. And that's actually what gives me a lot of hope is utilizing data that was collected, you know, and crop science data that was collected over the course of the last 70 years, and then putting that into better systems that can be utilized in a more modern way. Um, so certainly, I mean, almost too many innovations to, to mention. It is also worth mentioning, though, that the genetic engineering of crops today is specifically targeted to eight genomes that are primarily for glyphosate and dicamba resistance. And nothing, there's really nothing in modern gene editing that is related to driving additional yield or driving, um, you know, additional nutritional density in any kind of commercial setting. There have been some tests that people have done with the famous yellow rice tests in India that were unsuccessful. But other than that, we really don't have any genetic altering purpose other than the sale of, of herbicides as of, as of now. And I don't know if that will change in the future, but I, we, we, one of the, the, the scary things about it is we really genuinely don't know what some of the, the side effects are from some of these crops from a soil science standpoint. We do know that some of the herbicide resistance today in corn and soybeans and sugar beets can lead to the degradation of soil to some degree. 
And um, there's been some some good science, you know, around that. With the soil being such an important component of agriculture, of growing these organic crops, you said regenerative farming. Um, it's important to take this in the business standpoint and with this whole green business movement, whether you want to call it conscious capitalism, whether it's stakeholder capitalism, you are incorporating additional stakeholders into your thought process versus just the bottom line and, and using these genetically modified plans to reduce your costs and to have a better supply, you know, whatever it may be. But the carbon's a very unique component of this because carbon sequestering with the soil per, you know, is a uh, beneficial to the environment, beneficial to your community, the air we breathe. And the soil is now coming back to life through your agriculture techniques, if, if that's even how you would describe them. Um, but so, Matthew, the question for from a business standpoint is why regenerative agriculture and what are the benefits that your community and stakeholders are receiving from this? There's primarily two benefits. The, the first one is um, in terms of regenerative agriculture, just inherently by making progress in four major categories. Number one, uh, soil health. So monitoring soil health over the course of many years. And that's promoted through biodiversity, which is the second thing, adding different kinds of plants to your crop rotations, adding beneficials, adding native pollinators to the ecosystem. Then we look at integrated pest management. So the reduction of use of herbicides and pesticides to manage pests through more natural means, like, for example, you know, uh, mechanical techniques, or um, you can actually use some solar techniques to, to manage uh, pest pressure and, and weed pressure. And the last one is energy use on farms. So the reduction of use of petrochemical inputs to promote growth of plants in, in the form of nitrogen, which uses a lot of natural gas. And that's the biggest use of energy on a farm is actually ammonium nitrate fertilizer in the form of natural gas um, at its raw form. So by eliminating those things, you're, you're, first of all, you're eliminating the, the carbon that's getting emitted to farm those, you know, those plants and those, you know, feedstock uh, grains. And secondly, by doing that and by adding biodiversity, we're adding organic matter to the soil because we're keeping root systems intact. And in many cases, when we're harvesting, we're mowing as opposed to tilling. Mm -hmm. And increasing biological matter in soil or organic matter by percentage in soil means that you're reducing the, the volatilization of carbon and you're storing carbon in the soil in the forms of root systems of plants. So that's a huge benefit. The second biggest benefit is the socioeconomic benefit of that. Because when you're growing a non-GMO crop, it lives outside of the commoditized traded food system. And farmers are inherently able to make a few more cents per pound. It's an unsubsidized program, so it has to work out economically. It's actually a more capitalist program in some ways. And that cost gets passed on through the meat, healthier food, and consumers are driving that on retail shelves. And we know now that the non-GMO project verified label is actually more powerful than the organic label in food today from a consumer a brand perception standpoint. There have been a, a bunch of studies on that. And even more so, we're seeing folks move towards grass-fed and pasture-raised type foods because that's even more powerful. So when you start seeing those labels on foods, that's also an indication that farmers are getting paid better for the crops they're growing. And we're creating more integrity within our supply chain by um, having longevity with, with our growers. And that's really important because the average age of 
the U.S. farmer is almost 60 years old. And at some point, we, we start to age out our farming community. And we need people to come in that are younger generations that can make a living in, in agriculture. So, and, and we've already gone over this. So the reason, and correct me if I'm wrong, the reason for Cook's Venture was to, to basically grow out and improve an efficient regenerative supply chain for a company like Blue Apron at this time, right? So what's different with working and in, in being the founder of, of Cook's Venture versus a, a, a company that you're able to, I think I even have Blue Apron on my phone right now. I can find ingredients and, and good recipes and things like that. But what's, what's really been the difference for you? Well, a vertically integrated supply chain in, in animals is a, it's a complex business in that it really takes as a CEO full attention to focus on everything from the genetics of bird that we're producing really drive the entire ship in both directions and upstream and downstream dynamics of the company. So by having a bird that's more robust, it means that it has higher digestibility to diversified grains downstream and better genetic potential upstream in terms of how it performs from a livability standpoint. So if you think about it like this, a conventional broiler in America, which is essentially um, 99 plus percent of, of, of chickens in America are derived from a single breed, a modern Cornish cross chicken, have evolved over the course of the last 70 years, you know, post-World War II, when we got into this big grain Cold War with Russia and won economically by, we defeated Russia, not, not through nukes, but through, through grain surplus. And a lot of folks don't know that, but Michael Pollan writes about it in Omnivore's Dilemma. So you have this breed of bird and it's come up alongside and has been selected to eat specifically corn and soy over the course of 70 years. And that sort of takes away from the potential to create regenerative systems on 97% of, of America's cropland, like we said earlier. So the ability to build a more diverse bird, this was a decade-long project that my, my partner started in the business. And when I acquired the company, we've continued on with that project. So this selection of this bird has created a criteria where we now have an animal that can is a medium for farmers to mill their grains, to sell their grains to a local feed mill. So we can have you know tens of thousands of acres of land that we can affect all going to a feed mill. And now those farmers have a place to sell that diversified feed, which is to us, to our chickens, mm. where a commercial conventional operation would not be able to accept that kind of feed because... The chickens have not been selected for that nutritionally. We can select that kind of feed and we're the conduit for better food. So there's been a lot of talk over the last you know, five years or so about regenerative systems and you see mostly cattle. It's because nobody has figured out a great monogastric system, sing single stomach animal, hogs and, and chickens to accept diversified feeds, mill them, and then create a consumer product where you can monetize that. And without that medium, without that thing in the middle, which is Cook's Venture, then farmers can't win and consumers can't win. It's the stumbling block. Right. Again, I, I want to go back to that Patagonia example. You're just innovating around something that's, that's a problem it, to benefit society, to benefit the environment in ways that we haven't seen before, which becomes your business model, becomes your competitive advantage. It's fascinating for me. Um, chickens, you said, are, are monogastric, but cows, they have four stomachs. Yeah, the ruminants. The ruminants. So what's a cow's impact in all of this? And uh, have you 
have you learned or talked anything about the methane that they produce and how that impacts the environment as well? Yeah, cattle are really impactful in the modern food system, specifically because most cattle are finished on, on feedlots and they're also consuming grains, but they're biologically not designed to do that. So biologically, cattle, bovines, have this big rumen, the stomach, which is like a fermentation ba- barrel in the animal. So when you see a big, you know, a cow out in pasture and it's like kind of bloated and full, that's because it's full of grass and it's fermenting that feed. And it's like, much like you make beer, you take, you know, a complex carbohydrate and you ferment it into simple sugars and alcohol. Cattle are actually fermenting all the time, cellulite material, and they're turning it into simple carbohydrates. And that's actually what they digest in their, the rest of their digest, digestive tract and turn into muscle and bone and organ tissue and energy. So when you take cattle, which are really good at fermenting grass and creating food, and you put them on really concentrated feed, so corn and soy, just the, the nu- nutrition end of a grass plant, the problem with that is they over ferment and they get, you know, what would be the equivalent in people of acid reflux and they have esophageal lesions and problems growing and infections, which is why almost all cattle in America are given antibiotics and hormones prophylactically to enhance their growth and to keep them from getting sick and infections from over fermentation or bloat, as they call it in the business. So putting cattle back on grasslands is really important. And cattle on grasslands, we know, work really well ecologically with the soil because there are methane-eating bacteria in in permanent pasture that almost completely eliminate um, greenhouse gases. And actually, Will Harris from White Oak Pastures did a a really great study this year where he measured the impact of his cattle on his grassland and they were actually carbon negative. They were taking carbon back into the ground, which isn't surprising because pre-colonization of North America, there were more ruminants in buffalo and, and antelope and deer in North America than there are today in cattle. So the system works if we run it right. But if we put all animals in a concentrated lot and feed them grain, we're, we're polluting, we're creating greenhouse gases, and we're actually creating sick animals when it doesn't have to be like that. It's it's impressive how little we all know. The average pedestrian knows about the impact the agricultural or farming industry has on greenhouse gases. Uh, you also mentioned another thing about how we won the the war against Russia. I think that's a really good statement. And we actually had someone on the show who was uh, helping with food deliverability and, and analytics, trying to help the the food distribution allocate efficiently. Um, because the, uh, the one of the generals of the army, U.S. Army, I forget his name. Uh, forgive me. Uh, but he said the the threat that he fears the most is actually food insecurity, uh, not not another war. How are we going to feed my men? Is the is the is the, the big question. Um, so with all that in mind about you know the philosophical impact, the 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 tangible impact you can see, you know Matthew, when you set out to do something like this, you know a lot of people probably doubted you probably maybe thought you're a little crazy um now that this is actually happening what do you have to say about the leadership uh to effectively uh pursue something like this well you know first and foremost uh, businesses that work make sense and they they provide replication so 
I think one of the biggest problems in our space of regenerative agriculture, creating better food, is that there weren't a lot of great economic models that represented profitability and growing better food until very recently. And I think I can think of quite a few models that are doing a good job now. So seeing the land, the sea change of, of consumer dynamics and, and trying to buy better foods and seeing producers trying to match that demand and come up with creative solutions is now creating an economy that makes sense where people are actually making money. And I would say even five years ago, there weren't enough proof points. But as we develop more proof points around profitability in, in, in a society that, look, it's great that Rodale or Union of Concerned Scientists or Savory Institute is out there doing great NGO work, but it's NGO work. You know, We can't fuel a food economy with nonprofits alone. It's great science, but now let's turn it into a system that is a for-profit business. And when we can prove that, then we create our ability to legislate and lobby. And if we can legislate, we can create changes and, and create incentives and create better programs for farmers. But that won't ever exist until we can create the proof point. So I think some of the innovators in the industry, Bill Nyman, Will Harris, you know, myself, other folks, Patagonia is another great example, have gone out and they've said, okay, you know what, I'm going to spend my life's work figuring out how to do this stuff because I know in, in my heart that people want it and that it works and that there's a reason that we're doing this economically, not just for you know the sake of, of mother nature. And I think those things have to, to live together and that will create replication. And, and, and over time, um, it's like what happened in the solar industry in the 70s and 80s. You know, now look at today, we have the cost of, of, so, of solar as, as less than the cost of, of power on the grid. And I think we'll start to see that kind of match start a bigger fire in the food business as well. And for you yourself, Matthew, uh, who's uh, dedicating their life to this system's change, uh, it's going to take a lot of leadership to pull this off. To you, Matthew, what is your definition of a real leader? It's, it's, I know that's your, your great question, and it's, it is a really a great question. The, for me, a, a real leader is somebody who sees opportunity in whatever field that they're in and knows that it's going to take an army of people to align, to build a vision, and to create the right kind of culture that will allow them to be part of a movement. And real leaders don't take credit on their own. Real leaders believe in their teams and they believe in the folks that are able to make this vision, this artistic vision of, of entrepreneurship, a reality and, and sit down on paper and put an action plan together and, and make it happen and make them feel like they're able to really contribute and move the needle in their lives. Every person in a good company should understand that they have a role to contribute in that business that accomplishes the end goal. So if our goal is to sequester carbon, we need to know that everybody from our farmers to the people that are doing our sanitation shift at the end of the day know that specifically I'm doing the sanitation shift so that we can run the line tomorrow so that we can process the chicken so that we can manage our genetics program so that we can buy these incredible grains so that we can sequester carbon. And that's why I'm going to do a really good job doing it. A real leader puts that vision in people's heads. 
Matthew, just want to appreciate your time coming on uh, the Real Leaders podcast today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you all in our, our first live podcast today. Thanks to everyone tuning in today. Uh, love to see your comments and reactions and questions uh, at the end of the show. But for uh, Matthew Wadiak, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, build a culture people can follow. And always, folks, keep it real. Matthew, appreciate you coming on. Thank you. All right, good people. What do you think? First live stream today? Again, if you want to see more Impact Leaders live, you can tune in live. All you got to do is go to real-leaders.com slash newsletter, enter in your email, and we're going to make sure that you are notified on the day of that interview so you can RSVP. Come on stage, ask questions, and get all the information you need. Also, folks, this video will be uploaded to our new YouTube channel. So if you missed it, if you didn't see the notification in your inbox that this is going live, you can go to our YouTube channel. It's just at Real Leaders Magazine. Make sure to go on there, subscribe to watch all the Real Leaders harnessing capitalism to sustain the planet, people, and profits. All right. Thanks again, folks, for being a Real Leader. And stay tuned for the next episode.